0: this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit LibriVox.org. captain blood by rafael sabatini chapter two kirk's dragoons oglethorpe's farm stood a mile or so to the south of bridgewater on the right bank of the river it was a straggling tudor building showing gray above the ivy that clothed its lower parts approaching it now through the fragrant orchards amid which it seemed to drowse in arcadian peace beside the waters of the parrot sparkling in the morning sunlight mr blood might have had difficulty in believing it part of a world tormented by strife and bloodshed on the bridge as they had been riding out of bridgewater They had met a vanguard of fugitives from the field of battle, weary, broken men, many of them wounded, all of them terror-stricken, staggering in speedless haste, with the last remnants of their strength, into the shelter which it was their vain illusion the town would afford them. Eyes glazed with lassitude and fear, looked up piteously out of haggard faces at Mr. Blood and his companion as they rode forth. Hoarse voices cried a warning that merciless pursuit was not far behind. Undeterred, however, young Pitt rode amain along the dusty road by which these poor fugitives from that swift rout on Sedgemoor came flocking in ever increasing numbers. Presently he swung aside, and quitting the road, took to a pathway that crossed the dewy meadowlands. Even here they met odd groups of these human derelicts, who were scattering in all directions, looking fearfully behind them as they came through the long grass, expecting at every moment to see the red coats of the dragoons. But, as Pitt's direction was a southward one, bringing them ever nearer to Feversham's headquarters, they were presently clear of that human flotsam and jetsam of the battle, and riding through the peaceful orchards, heavy with the ripening fruit that was soon to make its annual yield of cider. At last they alighted on the kidney-stones of the courtyard, and Baines, the master of the homestead, grave of countenance and flustered of manner, gave them welcome. In the spacious stone-flagged hall the doctor found Lord Gildoy, a very tall and dark young gentleman, prominent of chin and nose, stretched on a cane day-bed under one of the tall, mullioned windows, in the care of Mrs. Baines and her comely daughter. His cheeks were leaden-hued, his eyes closed, and from his blue lips came with each laboured breath a faint moaning noise. Mr. Blood stood for a moment silently, considering his patient. He deplored that a youth with such bright hopes in life as Lord Godoy's should have risked all, perhaps existence itself, to forward the ambition of a worthless adventurer. Because he had liked and honoured this brave lad, he paid his case the tribute of a sigh. Then he knelt to his task, ripped away doublet and underwear to lay bare his lordship's mangled side, and called for water, and linen, and what else he needed for his work. He was still intent upon it, half an hour later, when the dragoons invaded the homestead. The clatter of hoofs and hoarse shouts that heralded their approach disturbed him not at all. For one thing he was not easily disturbed. For another, his task absorbed him. But his lordship, who had now recovered consciousness, showed considerable alarm, and the battle-stained Jeremy Pitt sped to cover in a clothes-press. Baines was uneasy, and his wife and daughter trembled. Mr. Blood reassured them. "'Why, what's to fear?' he said. "'It's a Christian country, this, and Christian men do not make war upon the wounded, nor upon those who harbour them.' He still had, you see, illusions about Christians. He held a glass of cordial, prepared under his directions to his lordship's lips give your mind peace my lord the worst is done and then they came rattling and clanking into the stone-flagged hall around a dozen jack-booted lobster-coated troopers of the changers regiment led by a sturdy black-browed fellow with a deal of gold lace around the breast of his coat Baines stood his ground, his attitude half-defiant, whilst his wife and daughter shrank away in renewed fear. Mr. Blood, at the head of the day-bed, looked over his shoulder to take stock of the invaders. The officer barked an order, which brought his men to an attentive halt, then swaggered forward, his gloved hand bearing down the pummel of his sword, his spurs jingling musically as he moved. He announced his authority to the yeoman. "'I am Captain Hobart, of Colonel Kirk's Dragoons. What rebels do you harbor?' The yeoman took alarm at that ferocious truculence. It expressed itself in his trembling voice. "'I, I am no harbour of rebels, sir.' "'This wounded gentleman I can see for myself.' "'The captain stomped forward to the day-bed "'and scowled down upon the grey-faced sufferer. "'No need to ask how he came to the state and by his wounds. "'A damned rebel, and that's enough for me. "'He flung a command at his dragoons. "'Out with him, my lads.' "'Mr. Blood got between the day-bed and the troopers.' "'In the name of humanity, sir,' said he, on a note of anger, "'this is England, not Tangiers. "'The gentleman is in sore case. "'He may not be moved without peril to his life.' "'Captain Hobart was amused. "'Oh, I am to be tender of the lives of these rebels. "'Odd's blood! "'Do you think it's to benefit his health we're taking him?' "'There's gallows being planted along the road from Weston to Bridgewater, "'and he'll serve for one of them as well as another. "'Colonel Kirk will learn these non-conforming oafs, "'something they'll not forget, in generations. "'You're hanging men without trial? Faith, then. "'It's mistaken, I am. We're in Tangers, after all, it seems, "'where your regiment belongs.' The captain considered him with a kindling eye. He looked him over from the soles of his riding boots to the crown of his periwig. He noted the spare, active frame, the arrogant poise of the head, the air of authority that invested Mr. Blood, and soldier recognized soldier. The captain's eyes narrowed. Recognition went further. Who the hell may you be? he exploded. My name is Blood, sir, Peter Blood, at your service. Aye, aye, cod so, that's the name. You were in French service once, were you not? If Mr. Blood was surprised, he did not betray it. I was. Then I remember you five years ago or more. You were in Tangiers. That is so. I knew your colonel. Faith! <laughs> You may be renewing the acquaintance, the captain laughed unpleasantly. What brings you here, sir? This wounded gentleman. I was fetched to attend him. I am a medicus. A doctor? You? Scorn of that lie, as he conceived it, rang in the heavy, hectoring tone. Medicinae baccalaureus, said Mr. Blood. Don't fling your French at me, man, snapped Hobart. "'Speak English!' Mr. Blood's smile annoyed him. "'I am a physician practising my calling in the town of Bridgewater.' "'The captain sneered. "'Which you reach by way of Lyme Regis, "'in the following of your bastard Duke!' "'It was Mr. Blood's turn to sneer. "'If your wit were as big as your voice, my dear, "'it's the great man you'd be by this.' For a moment the dragoon was speechless. The color deepened in his face. "'You may find me great enough to hang you.' "'Faith, yes. You've the look and the manners of a hangman. But if you practice your trade on my patient here, you may be putting a rope around your own neck. He's not the kind you may string up, and no questions asked. He has the right to a trial.' and the right to a trial by his peers by his peers the captain was taken aback by these words which mr blood had stressed sure now any but a fool or a savage would have asked his name before ordering him to the gallows the gentleman is my lord gildoy and then his lordship spoke for himself in a weak voice I make no concealment of my association with the duke of monmouth i'll take the consequences but if you please i'll take them after trial by my peers as the doctor has said the feeble voice ceased and was followed by a moment's silence as is common in many blustering men there was a deal of timidity deep down in Hobart. The announcement of his lordship's rank had touched those depths. A servile upstart, he stood in awe of titles. And he stood in awe of his colonel. Percy Kirk was not lenient with blunderers. By a gesture he checked his men. He must consider. Mr. Blood, observing his pause, added further matter for his consideration. "'You'll be remembering, Captain, that Lord Gildoy will have friends and relatives on the Tory side, who'll have something to say to Colonel Kirk, if his lordship should be handled like a common felon. "'You'll go warily, Captain, or, as I have said, it's a halter for your neck. You'll be weaving this morning.' "'Captain Hobart,' "'swept the warning aside with a bluster of contempt. "'But he acted upon it none the less. "'Take up the day-bed,' said he, "'and convey him on that to Bridgewater. "'Lodge him in the jail until I take order about him. "'He may not survive the journey,' blood remonstrated. "'He's in no case to be moved. "'So much the worse for him.' "'My affair is to round up rebels.' "'He confirmed his order by a gesture. Two of his men took up the day-bed, "'and swung to depart with it. "'Gildoy made a feeble effort "'to put forth a hand towards Mr. Blood. "'Sir,' he said, "'you leave me in your debt. "'If I live, I shall study how to discharge it.' "'Mr. Blood bowed for answer. "'Then to the men,' Bear him steadily, he commanded. His life depends on it. As his lordship was carried out, the captain became brisk. He turned upon the yeoman. What other cursed rebels do you harbor? None other, sir. His lordship? We've dealt with his lordship for the present. We'll deal with you in a moment, when we've searched your house. And by God, if you've lied to me! He broke off, snarling, to give an order. Four of his dragoons went out. In a moment they were heard moving noisily in the adjacent room. Meanwhile the captain was questing about the hall, sounding the wainscoting with the butt of a pistol. Mr. Blood saw no profit to himself in lingering. "'By your leave, it's a very good day, I'll be wishing you,' said he. "'By my leave you'll remain a while,' the captain ordered him. Mr. Blood shrugged, and sat down. "'You're tiresome,' he said. "'I wonder your colonel hasn't discovered it yet.' But the captain did not heed him. He was stooping to pick up a soiled and dusty hat, in which there was pinned a little bunch of oak leaves. It had been lying near the clothes-press in which the unfortunate pit— Had taken refuge. The captain smiled malevolently. His eyes raked the room, resting first sardonically on the yeoman, then on the two women in the background, and finally on Mr. Blood, who sat with one leg thrown over the other in an attitude of indifference that was far from reflecting his mind. Then the captain stepped to the press and pulled open one of the wings of its massive oaken door. He took the huddled inmate by the collar of his doublet, and lugged him out into the open. "'And who the devil's this?' quoth he. "'Another nobleman?' Mr. Blood had a vision of those gallows of which Captain Hobart had spoken, and his unfortunate young shipmaster going to adorn one of them, strung up without trial, in the place of the other victim, of whom the captain had been cheated. On the spot he invented not only a title, but a whole family for the young rebel. Faith, ye've said it, Captain, this is Viscount Pitt, first cousin to Sir Thomas Vernon, who's married to that slut Malkirk, sister to your own colonel, and sometime lady-in-waiting upon King James Queen.' Both the captain and his prisoner gasped. But whereas thereafter young Pitt discreetly held his peace, the captain rapped out a nasty oath. He considered his prisoner again. "'He's lying, is he not?' he demanded, seizing the lad by the shoulder and glaring into his face. "'He's rallying me by God!' "'If you believe that,' said Blood, "'hang him!' and see what happens to you. The dragoon glared at the doctor, and then at his prisoner. Pah! he thrust the lad into the hands of his men. Fetch him along to Bridgewater, and make fast. That fellow also, he pointed to Baines, we'll show him what it means to harbor and comfort rebels. There was a moment of confusion. Baines struggled in the grip of the troopers, protesting vehemently. The terrified women screamed until silenced by the greater terror. The captain strode across to them. He took the girl by the shoulders. She was a pretty golden-headed creature, with soft blue eyes that looked up entreatingly, piteously, into the face of the dragoon. He leered upon her, his eyes aglow, took her chin in his hand, and set her shuddering by his brutal kiss. "'It's in earnest,' he said, smiling grimly. "'Let that quiet you, little rebel, till I've done with these rogues.' And he swung away again, leaving her faint and trembling in the arms of her anguished mother. His men stood, grinning, awaiting orders. The two prisoners now fast pinioned. "'Let Cornet Drake have charge of them.' His smouldering eye again sought the cowering girl. I'll stay awhile to search out this place. There may be other rebels hidden here. As an afterthought, he added, And take this fellow with you. He pointed to Mr. Blood. Be stir! Mr. Blood started out of his musings. He had been considering that in his case of instruments, there was a lancet, with which he might perform on Captain Hobart a beneficial operation, beneficial, that is, to humanity. In any case, the dragoon was, obviously, plethoric, and would be better for a bloodletting. The difficulty lay in making the opportunity. He was beginning to wonder if he could lure the captain aside with some tale of hidden treasure, when this untimely interruption set a term to that interesting speculation. He sought to temporize. "'Faith, it will suit me very well,' said he, "'for Bridgewater is my destination, and but that ye detained me, "'I'd have been on my way thither now.' "'Your destination there will be the jail.' (laughs) "'Ha! Bah! You're surely joking.' there's a gallows for you if you prefer it it's merely a question of now or later rude hands seized mr blood and that precious lancet was in the case on the table out of reach he twisted out of the grip of the dragoons for he was strong and agile but they closed with him again immediately and bore him down pinning him to the ground they tied his wrists behind his back, then roughly pulled him to his feet again. "'Take him away,' said Hobart shortly, and turned to issue his orders to the other waiting dragoons. "'Go search the house, from attic to cellar, then report to me here.' The soldiers trailed out by the door, leading to the interior. Mr. Blood was thrust by his guards into the courtyard, where Pitt and Baines already waited. From the threshold of the hall, he looked back at Captain Hobart, and his sapphire eyes were blazing. On his lips trembled a threat of what he would do to Hobart if he should happen to survive this business. Betimes he remembered that to utter it were probably to extinguish his chance of living to execute it. For to-day, The king's men were masters in the west, and the west was regarded as enemy country, to be subjected to the worst horror of war by the victorious side. Here a captain of horse was for the moment lord of life and death. Under the apple-trees in the orchard Mr. Blood and his companions in misfortune were made fast, each to a trooper's stirrup leather. Then... At the sharp order of the cornet, the little troop started for Bridgewater. As they set out, there was the fullest confirmation of Mr. Blood's hideous assumption that to the dragoons this was a conquered enemy territory. There were sounds of rending timbers, of furniture smashed and overthrown, the shouts and laughter of brutal men to announce that this hunt for rebels was no more than a pretext for pillage and destruction finally above all other sounds came the piercing screams of a woman in acutest agony Banes checked in his stride and swung round writhing his face ashen As a consequence, he was jerked from his feet by the rope that attached him to the stirrup leather, and he was dragged helplessly a yard or two before the trooper reined in, cursing him foully, and striking him with the flat of his sword. It came to Mr. Blood, as he trudged forward under the laden apple-trees on that fragrant, delicious July morning, that man, as he had long suspected, was the vilest work of God, and that only a fool would set himself up as a healer of a species that was best exterminated. End of chapter 2 Read by Dennis Sayers for LibriVox in Modesto, California, Spring 2005